Part two of an unfinished story by Richard Harding Davis. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Caroline. Part two. We were on our return march from Lake Chad to the Mobangi, said Gordon. We had been travelling over a month, sometimes by water and sometimes through the forest, and we did not expect to see any other white men besides those of our own party for several months to come. In the middle of a jungle, late one afternoon, I found this man lying at the foot of a tree. He had been cut and beaten and left for dead. It was as much of a surprise to me, you understand, as it would be to you if you were driving through Trafalgar Square in a hansom and an African lion should spring up on your horse's haunches. We believed we were the only white men that had ever succeeded in getting that far south. Crample had tried it, and no one knows yet whether he is dead or alive, dr schlemann had been eaten by cannibals and major bethume had turned back two hundred miles further north and we could no more account for this man's presence than if he had been dropped from the clouds lieutenant royce my surgeon went to work at him and we halted where we were for the night in about an hour the man moved and opened his eyes he looked up at us and said thank god because we were white i suppose and went off into unconsciousness again when he came to the next time he asked royce in a whisper how long he had to live he wasn't the sort of man you had to lie to about a thing like that and royce told him he did not think he could live for more than an hour or two the man moved his head to show that he understood, and raised his hand to his throat, and began pulling at his shirt, but the effort sent him off into a fainting fit again. I opened his collar for him as gently as I could, and found that his fingers had clinched around a silver necklace that he wore about his neck, and from which there hung a gold locket shaped like a heart gordon raised his eyes slowly from the observation of his finger-tips as they rested on the edge of the table before him to those of the american girl who sat opposite she had heard his story so far without any show of attention and had been watching rather with a touch of fondness in her eyes the clever earnest face of arbuthnot who was following Gordon's story with polite interest. But now, at Gordon's last words, she turned her eyes to him with a look of awful indignation, which was followed, when she met his calmly polite look of inquiry, by one of fear and almost entreaty. When the man came to, continued Gordon, in the same conventional monotone, he begged me to take the chain and lock it to a girl whom he said I would find either in London or New York. He gave me the address of her banker. He said, Take it off my neck before you bury me. Tell her I wore it ever since she gave it to me, that it has been a charm and a lodestone to me. 
that when the locket rose and fell against my breast, it was as if her heart were pressing against mine and answering the beating and throbbing of the blood in my veins. Gordon paused and returned to the thoughtful scrutiny of his fingertips. The man did not die, he said, rising his head. Royce brought him back into such form again that in about a week we were able to take him along with us on a litter. But he was very weak and would lie for hours sleeping when we rested or mumbling and raving in a fever. We learned from him at odd times that he had been trying to reach Lake Chad to do what we had done without any means of doing it. He had had not more than a couple of dozen porters and a corporal's guard of Senegalese soldiers. He was the only white man in the party, and his men had turned on him and left him as we found him, carrying off with them his stock of provisions and arms. He had undertaken the expedition on a promise from the French government to make him governor of the territory he opened up if he succeeded, but he had had no official help. If he failed, he got nothing. If he succeeded, he did so at his own expense and by his own endeavours. It was only a wonder he had been able to get as far as he did. He did not seem to feel the failure of his expedition. All that was lost in the happiness of getting back alive to this woman with whom he was in love. He had been three days alone before we found him, and in those three days, while he waited for death, he had thought of nothing but that he would never see her again. He had resigned himself to this, had given up all hope, and our coming seemed like a miracle to him. I have read about men in love, I have seen it on the stage, I have seen it in real life, but I never saw a man so grateful to God, and so happy, and so insane over a woman as this man was. He raved about her when he was feverish, and he talked and talked to me about her when he was in his senses. The porters could not understand him, and he found me sympathetic, I suppose, or else he did not care, and only wanted to speak of her to someone, and so he told me the story over and over again as I walked beside the litter, or as we sat by the fire at night. She must have been a very remarkable girl. He had met her first the year before on one of the Italian steamers that ply from New York to Gibraltar. She was travelling with her father, who was an invalid going to Tangier for his health. From Tangier they were to go up to Nice and Cannes, and in the spring to Paris and on to London for this season just over. The man was going from Gibraltar to Zanzibar, and then on into the Congo. They had met the first night out. They had separated thirteen days later at Gibraltar, and in that time the girl had fallen in love with him, and had promised to marry him if he would let her, for he was very proud. He had to be. He had absolutely nothing to offer her. She is very well known at home. 
I mean her family is. They have lived in New York from its first days, and they are very rich. The girl had lived a life as different from his as the life of a girl in society must be from that of a vagabond. He had been an engineer, a newspaper correspondent, an officer in a Chinese army, and had built bridges in South America, and led their little revolutions there, and had seen service on the desert in the French army of Algiers. He had no home or nationality even, for he had left America when he was sixteen, he had no family, had saved no money, and was trusting everything to the success of this expedition into Africa to make him known and to give him position. It was the story of Otello and Desdemona over again. His blackness lay from her point of view, or rather would have lain from the point of view of her friends, in the fact that he was as helplessly ineligible a young man as a cowboy, and he really had lived a life of which he had no great reason to be proud. He had existed entirely for excitement, as other men live to drink until they kill themselves by it. Nothing he had done had counted for much except his bridges. They are still standing. But the things he had written are lost in the columns of the daily papers. The soldiers he had fought with knew him only as a man who cared more for the fighting than for what the fighting was about, and he had been as ready to write on one side as to fight on the other. He was a rolling stone, and had been a rolling stone from the time he was sixteen and had run away to sea, up to the day he had met this girl when he was just thirty. Yet you can see how such a man would attract a young, impressionable girl who had met only those men whose actions are bounded by the courts of law or Wall Street or the younger set who drive coaches and who live the life of the clubs. She had gone through life as some people go through picture galleries with their catalogues marked at the best pictures. She knew nothing of the little fellows whose work was skied, who were trying to be known, who were not of her world, but who toiled and prayed and hoped to be famous. This man came into her life suddenly with his stories of adventure and strange people and strange places, of things done for the love of doing them and not for the reward or reputation, and he bewildered her at first, I suppose, and then fascinated, and then won her. You can imagine how it was, these two, walking the deck together during the day, or sitting side by side when the night came on, the ocean stretched before them. The daring of his present undertaking, the absurd glamour that is thrown over those who have gone into that strange country from which some travellers return, and the picturesqueness of his past life. It is no wonder the girl made too much of him. I do not think he knew what was coming. He did not pose before her. I am quite sure from what I knew of him that he did not. 
Indeed, I believed him when he said that he had fought against the more than interest she had begun to show for him. He was the sort of man women care for, but they had not been of this woman's class or calibre. She came to him like a sign from the heavens. It was as if a goddess had stooped to him. He told her when they separated that if he succeeded, if he opened this unknown country, if he was rewarded as they had promised to reward him, he might dare to come to her, and she called him her knight-errant, and gave him her chain and locket to wear, and told him whether he failed or succeeded it meant nothing to her, and that her life was his while it lasted, and her soul as well. I think, Gordon said, stopping abruptly, with an air of careful consideration, that those were her words as he repeated them to me. He raised his eyes thoughtfully towards the face of the girl opposite, and then glanced past her as if he were trying to recall the words the man had used. The fine, beautiful face of the woman was white and drawn around the lips, and she gave a quick appealing glance at her hostess as if she would beg to be allowed to go. But Mrs. Trevelyan and her guests were watching Gordon, or toying with the things in front of them. The dinner had been served, and not even the soft movements of the servants interrupted the young man's story. "'You can imagine a man,' Gordon went on more lightly, "'finding a handsome cab slow when he is riding from the station to see the woman he loves.' But imagine this man urging himself and the rest of us to hurry when we were in the heart of Africa, with six months' travel in front of us before we could reach the first limits of civilization. That is what this man did. When he was still on his litter, he used to toss and turn, and abuse the bearers and porters and myself, because we moved so slowly." When we stopped for the night, he would chafe and fret at the delay, and when the morning came he was the first to wake, if he slept at all, and eager to push on. When at last he was able to walk, he worked himself into a fever again, and it was only when Royce warned him that he would kill himself if he kept on, that he submitted to be carried, and forced himself to be patient." and all the time the poor devil kept saying how unworthy he was of her, how miserably he had wasted his years, how unfitted he was for the great happiness which had come into his life. I suppose every man says that when he is in love, very properly too, but the worst of it was, in this man's case, that it was so very true." He was unworthy of her in everything but his love for her. It used to frighten me to see how much he cared. Well, we got out of it at last and reached Alexandria and saw white faces once more and heard women's voices and the strain and fear of failure were over and we could breathe again. 
I was quite ready enough to push on to London, but we had to wait a week for the steamer, and during that time that man made my life miserable. He had done so well, and would have done so much more if he had had my equipment, that I tried to see that he received all the credit due to him. But he would have none of the public receptions, and the audience with the Khedive, or any of the fuss they made over us. He only wanted to get back to her. He spent the days on the quay watching them load the steamer, and counting the hours until she was to sail, and even at night he would leave the first bed he had slept in for months, and would come into my room and ask me if I could not sit up and talk with him until daylight. You see, after he had given up all thought of her, and believed himself about to die without seeing her again, it made her all the dearer, I suppose, and made him all the more fearful of losing her again. He became very quiet as soon as we were really under way, and Royce and I hardly knew him for the same man. He would sit in silence in his steamer chair for hours, looking out at the sea and smiling to himself, and sometimes, for he was still very weak and feverish, the tears would come to his eyes and run down his cheeks. This is the way we would sit, he said to me one night, with the dark purple sky and the strange southern stars over our heads and the rail of the boat rising and sinking below the line of the horizon. And I can hear her voice, and I try to imagine she is still sitting here, as she did the last night out, when I held her hands between mine. Gordon paused a moment, and went on more slowly. I do not know whether it was that the excitement of the journey overland had kept him up or not, but as we went on, he became much weaker and slept more, until Royce became anxious and alarmed about him. But he did not know it himself, he had grown so sure of his recovery then, that he did not understand what the weakness meant. He fell off into long spells of sleep or unconsciousness, and woke only to be fed, and would then fall back to sleep again. And in one of these spells of unconsciousness he died. He died within two days of land. He had no home and no country and no family, as I told you, and we buried him at sea. He left nothing behind him, for the very clothes he wore were those we had given him, nothing but the locket and the chain which he had told me to take from his neck when he died. Gordon's voice had grown very cold and hard. He stopped and ran his fingers down into his pocket and pulled out a little leather bag. The people at the table watched him in silence as he opened it and took out a dull silver chain with a gold heart hanging from it. This is it, he said gently. 
he leaned across the table with his eyes fixed on those of the american girl and dropped the chain in front of her would you like to see it he said the rest moved curiously forward to look at the little heap of gold and silver as it lay on the white cloth but the girl with her eyes half closed and her lips pressed together pushed it on with her hand to the man who sat next her and bowed her head slightly as though it was an effort for her to move at all the wife of the austrian minister gave a little sigh of relief i should say your story did end badly mr gordon she said it is terribly sad and so unnecessarily so i don't know said lady arbuthnot thoughtfully i don't know it seems to me it was better as mr gordon says the man was hardly worthy of her a man should have something more to offer a woman than love it is a woman's prerogative to be loved any number of men may love her it is nothing to their credit they cannot help themselves well said general kent if all true stories turn out as badly as that one does i will take back what i said against those the story-writers tell i prefer the ones anstey and jerome make up i call it a most unpleasant story but it isn't finished yet said gordon as he leaned over and picked up the chain and locket there's still a little more oh i beg your pardon said the wife of the austrian minister eagerly but then she added you can't make it any better you cannot bring the man back to life no said gordon but i can make it a little worse ah i see said phillips with a story-teller's intuition the girl the first day i reached london i went to her bankers and got her address continued gordon and i wrote saying i wanted to see her but before i could get an answer i met her the next afternoon at a garden party at least i did not meet her she was pointed out to me i saw a very beautiful girl surrounded by a lot of men and asked who she was and found out it was the woman i had written to the owner of the chain and locket and i was also told that her engagement had just been announced to a young englishman of family and position who had known her only a few months and with whom she was very much in love so you see he went on smiling that it was better that he died believing in her and in her love for him mr phillips now would have let him live to return and find her married but nature is kinder than writers of fiction and quite as dramatic phillips did not reply to this and the general only shook his head doubtfully and said nothing so mrs trevelyan looked at lady arbuthnot and the ladies rose and left the room 
when the men had left them a young girl went to the piano and the other women seated themselves to listen but miss egerton saying that it was warm stepped out through one of the high windows on the little balcony that overhung the garden it was dark out there and cool and the rumbling of the encircling city sounded as distant and as far off as the reflection seemed that its million lights threw up to the sky above the girl leaned her face and bare shoulder against the rough stone wall of the house and pressed her hands together with her fingers locking and unlocking and her rings cutting through her gloves she was trembling slightly and the blood in her veins was hot and tingling she heard the voices of the men as they entered the drawing-room the momentary cessation of the music at the piano and its renewal and then a figure blocked the light from the window and gordon stepped out of it and stood in front of her with the chain and locket in his hand he held it towards her and they faced each other for a moment in silence will you take it now he said the girl raised her head and drew herself up until she stood straight and tall before him have you not punished me enough she asked in a whisper are you not satisfied was it brave was it manly is that what you have learned among your savages to torture a woman she stopped with a quick sob of pain and pressed her hands against her breast gordon observed her curiously with cold consideration what of the sufferings of the man to whom you gave this he asked why not consider him what was your bad quarter of an hour at the table with your friends around you to the year he suffered danger and physical pain for you for you remember the girl hid her face for a moment in her hands and when she lowered them again her cheeks were wet and her voice was changed and softer they told me he was dead she said then it was denied and then the french papers told of it again and with horrible detail and how it happened gordon took a step nearer her and does your love come and go with the editions of the daily papers he asked fiercely if they say to-morrow morning that arbuthnot is false to his principles or his party that he is a bribe-taker a man who sells his vote will you believe them and stop loving him he gave a sharp exclamation of disdain or will you wait he went on bitterly until the liberal organs have had time to deny it is that the love the life and the soul you promised the man who there was a soft step on the floor to the drawing-room and the tall figure of young arbuthnot appeared in the opening of the window as he looked doubtfully into the darkness gordon took a step back into the light of the window where he could be seen 
and leaned easily against the railing of the balcony his eyes were turned towards the street and he noticed over the wall the top of a passing omnibus and the glow of the men's pipes who sat on it miss egerton asked arbuthnot his eyes still blinded by the lights of the room he had left is she here oh is that you he said as he saw the movement of the white dress i was sent to look for you he said they were afraid something was wrong he turned to gordon as if in explanation of his lover-like solicitude it has been rather a hard week and it has kept one pretty well on the go all the time and i thought miss egerton looked tired at dinner the moment he had spoken the girl came towards him quickly and put her arm inside of his and took his hand he looked down at her wonderingly at this show of affection and then drew her nearer and said gently you are tired aren't you i came to tell you that lady arbuthnot is going she is waiting for you it struck gordon as they stood there how handsome they were and how well suited they took a step towards the window and then the young nobleman turned and looked out at the pretty garden and up the sky where the moon was struggling against the glare of the city it is very pretty and peaceful out here he said is it not it seems a pity to leave it good-night gordon and thank you for your story he stopped with one foot on the threshold and smiled and yet do you know he said i cannot help thinking you were guilty of doing just what you accused philip of doing i somehow thought you helped the true story out a little now didn't you was it all just as you told it or am i wrong no gordon answered you are right i did change it a little in one particular and what was that may i ask said arbuthnot the man did not die gordon answered arbuthnot gave a quick little sigh of sympathy poor devil he said softly poor chap he moved his left hand over and touched the hand of the girl as though to reassure himself of his own good fortune then he raised his eyes to gordon's with a curious puzzled look in them but then he said doubtfully if he is not dead how did you come to get the chain the girl's arm within his own moved slightly and her fingers tightened their hold upon his hand oh said gordon indifferently it did not mean anything to him you see when he found he had lost her and it could not mean anything to her it is of no value it means nothing to any one except perhaps to me end of part two end of an unfinished story by richard harding davis recorded by caroline in hamburg in germany on the twenty sixth of july two thousand sixteen thank you for listening